Republican lawmakers want to overhaul the Affordable Care Act health care system. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and on this week's Noon Edition, we'll be discussing Indiana's changing public health care options. We'll answer your questions. Call in at 812-855-0811 or join the conversation on Twitter. Proponents of this change believe that this will allow for more local authority over medical caregiving, while opponents claim this will lead to cuts in service, higher deductibles, and eventually less enrollment. How will these sides compromise to provide Hoosiers with the best option? We'll talk about that issue and more after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU-WTIU's Joe Wren, who's sitting in today for Sarah Whitmire. The uh, Republican lawmakers in Washington have said they intend to overhaul the Affordable Care Act One possibility would be to turn Medicaid into a block grant program, which would give states a financial authority over how best to manage their health care. We have uh, three guests with us in the studio to talk about what could be ahead in health care and in the Indiana health care system in particular. Our guests are Kosalee Simon, a professor in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs who specializes in health care policy, Leslie Green, the CEO of Stonebell Arc, and Nancy Woolery, who is a navigator for uh, Obamacare and also is health project manager for the City of Bloomington Community and Family Resources Department. You can join us on the program at 1-812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. And you can join uh, join us online, wfiu.org slash noon edition, or you can even follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So this we live in interesting times. This health care issue is, is huge. We've had Kosali on the show before uh, numerous times uh, over the past few years. And now we're, it seems like in some ways we're almost back to square one, Kosali. What's going on here with uh, what's going to happen with Obamacare? So we've had you know, President Trump running on a platform of repealing the ACA and, and many pledges that it's going to happen fast. So we're watching what are the, the ways this is going to happen? What are the actual action items that we'll have to, to consider? So we've had so far an executive order that essentially just puts in, um, in, 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 in writing the message that agencies are going to be trying to you know, save money for states and let the decisions not, uh, that the, 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 for example, you can see today there was news that the 
uh, Department of Health and Human Services are going to seize the advertising for open enrollment. So these are the ways that we're seeing actions now. But we know there are plans brewing. We just haven't seen the details. We do have some inklings of what will be in those plans, and Medicaid block grants are among them. Okay. Now, do you see from what you've been hearing and from what you've been studying, do you think that, I mean, we've we heard about you know, let's repeal Obamacare for years, for years, really, since the since the program started. But the Republicans did finally start to say we need to repeal and replace. Do you think that's all going to come together at the same time? So we hear two messages, right? One of repeal has to happen right away, or does repeal have to happen at the same time as a replacement? And then along with that is the pledge that people will not lose insurance, people who currently have health insurance under the Affordable Care Act not losing it. So to put that all together, it has to be then that repeal and replacement has to happen together, but also in a way that the replacement plan isn't something that will take a year or more to implement, that it has to be such that as the coverage ends under the Affordable Care Act, that immediately those people will be on some other plan. And we're waiting to see how, how is that going to work. Okay. Well, I want to ask uh, both Leslie and Nancy, because you guys are working with with people every day who are on the Affordable Care Act. Um, so, Leslie, from your standpoint, first, from, from Stonebaugh, I mean, what, what, what are your concerns about what you've been hearing? Well, you know, Actually, most of our clients that we serve have been on Medicaid for many years. They receive their basic health care, and they receive their long-term services from Medicaid. Um, so the ACA for most of them was not an additional benefit. It was just added into the Medicaid uh, system, if you will. So I've been so concerned for a while when they talked about appealing, repealing Obamacare, that when they picked up that piece of the, ACE, or the ACA that they wanted to get rid of or, ACE, or Obamacare, that they'd also start making some, some changes to the Medicaid coverage. And that does appear to be what is in, in store. Um, the Republican Congress for some time has wanted to block grant Medicaid, so the repeal of the ACA seems to be their opportunity just to kind of take care of all of that at once. So for, for those of us who don't you know work in this area, so the block grant system versus what's happening now, I mean, how can you explain how that's a change? Leslie? So the block grant system would give states money, a, a big block of money, to, um, to take care of the Medicaid population. And it would remove some of the federal restrictions or requirements. Um, so it would remove some of the eligibility requirements. It would remove the match, which currently in Indiana is about $2 to every $1 of Indiana funds. It would uh, It would get rid of the uh, presumed eligibility if you qualify, so it would no longer be an entitlement program. And it would not go up and down according to the economic circumstances. So, for example, when we went through the Great Recession, Medicaid expenditure, expenditures increased so that people could gain health care and other needed services in a time when they were losing employment. So all of those kinds of factors would go away in a block grant situation. Okay. And, and Nancy, I want to ask you, because you've you're, as a navigator, you're talking with people right now about what they're going to do about their, their health care, their health insurance. So wh what are your concerns and what are you hearing? Well, um, the deadline is January 31st to enroll in a 2017 plan. That's which Tuesday, right? And that's Tuesday. <laughs> right. We actually um, organized an enrollment event this past Tuesday trying to get people there and 
uh, we had some coverage and people were calling and asking me, is this even worth it? I heard that this is going to go away. I don't know what to do. I'm scared. You know what's going to happen. And I just encourage people, just go ahead, you know, get on the plan because we really don't know what's going to happen in the future. So there's a lot of anxiety there. And, um, you know, there were so many good parts of the Affordable Care Act, you know, the pre-existing condition. Um, you know, I've talked to people for years that couldn't get on health insurance before this because they had, you know, a skin disease or, you know, asthma or something like that. And, of course, they couldn't get any coverage. So, you know, that's a big piece of it. And people are really scared. They don't, you know, they don't know what the future will hold for them as far as health insurance. Mm-hmm. Is it true, too, that a lot of those premiums are much higher this year, that there are things that they're having trouble trying to find healthcare options that are that fit their budgets? Well, I know they keep talking about how these premiums have gone up in some states, but they haven't gone up that much in Indiana. In Indiana. Um, but the only problem is some of the insurance companies. We started out with six or seven in Monroe County, and now for this year, we only have a choice of three. Mm. So, um, but the premiums have not been that you know, drastically increased as far as in our state. We're talking about the, the future of healthcare in not just Indiana, but probably the United States because we, you know, we're in a period of time where the, the um, new government of uh, President Trump and the Republicans are considering repealing and replacing uh, the Affordable Care Act. So we have three guests with us in the studio and we're talking about this if you want to join us on the phone. one 855 in Bloomington or one 285 outside of the Bloomington area. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition if you want to join a live chat and at Noon Edition on Twitter. Um, Kosali Simon, I'd like to ask about the, the differences between the Affordable Care Act and HIP 2.0. I mean, I've always been in, sort of intrigued by this because you hear the political discussion that, you know, Governor Pence or uh, the, and the Republicans will always often say, well, we've got a better idea. We're doing HIP 2.0. Yet, nothing really did happen until uh, the Affordable Care Act was out there pushing something to happen. So what are the key differences there? And, uh, you know, is this something that the, with Governor Pence and his job that the federal government might push toward? The way that the, the HIP 2.0 plan and the Affordable Care Act um, I- interact is that the Affordable Care Act enabled money to be used to insure the uninsured through two vehicles, one of which is expanding Medicaid. So states were told, take this money, we're going to pay for a few years 100%, and then over 10 years it goes to 90% of the money you need to insure a population that hasn't had Medicaid uh, available before, which is able-bodied, non-elderly, low-income adults. So that population, some states said, all right, we are going to expand Medicaid just as the federal government says, just make it like a regular Medicaid program. And a few states said, no, we don't want to do it that way. We want to do it in a different way. Indiana is one of them. So they needed to get approval first to expand in a different way. And that's the result in Indiana is the HIP 2.0 plan. So how is it different from what other states have done? The biggest difference is that there is going to there's cost sharing whereas in other states 
it's not that you have to pay anything into it in order to stay enrolled in Indiana. You have to pay something into it, the power account contribution, and then that's put into a health savings account idea. So that's, that's what we'll likely see if the expansion um, continues in a way that states are given more flexibility with Medicaid states will say, well, we want to try this other feature. We might have some kind of um, work training requirement that in order to maintain Medicaid, you'll have to show that you're also trying uh, to find ways to become employed if currently you're unemployed. Okay. And so, Leslie and Nancy, HIP 2.0, is that working well for the clients that you see? Is that as good as just a general expansion or better than just a general expansion of Medicaid? Yeah, I think it's working pretty well for the people that I've signed up for HIP Mm 2.0. The cost sharing isn't a burden? No, it isn't, Mm -hmm. at least for the people that I've talked to. Um, You know, you just have to make sure that you do get your um, premium payment paid on time or otherwise you know, you will get dropped from the program. Mm-hmm. So, and how much are these premiums under HIP 2.0? Uh, it depends on where you fall as far as the eligibility and also as far as what program you're on, because there's several different HIP programs. Okay. There's HIP Basic and there's HIP Plus. So you're going to be paying um, a premium for HIP Plus versus with the HIP Basic. Okay. Well, and then, you know, some of these people, too, that I've just been, you know, you you hear from, and they may not be from Indiana, but the um, fees or the fines, that if you're not part of uh, a health care, that they rather pay that Mm. than go through this process. So what's, what's, how is it getting to that point that they're, to that point that they are saying, I'll just pay the fine? What's happening there? Well, um, jump in on that. <laughs> some of the people that I've talked to have said, you know, I can't find a plan that's affordable for me. And so, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and pay the penalty. And I think this year it was $635 or something if you didn't mm. have insurance. And they said, well, that's cheaper than me getting the insurance. Um, mm. But, you know, I try to tell them, hey, if something major happens to right. you and you end up, you know, in the hospital with a $50,000 bill you know, Mm -hmm. that's really going to hurt you. Mm -hmm. So, and most of the people that I talk to are younger folks that are just like, eh, I don't really need it. You know, I'm healthy. And um, unfortunately, Indiana doesn't have a catastrophic plan um, for those that are under the age of 30. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they just take their chances, their risks. And that's one of the things that we've heard a lot about, and perhaps Kosali can address this, is that the uh, the idea for funding this program a lot had to do with younger people who mm-hmm. are healthy and without their participation that the program was in trouble. Is that correct? Exactly. I think that when the rules of insurance now say that insurers can't charge more for people who have health conditions that are expensive and that um, even based on age, there's only a one to three amount that can be charged for the oldest versus the youngest, that there's got to be place, uh, th- that's got to be some forces that work towards getting everybody in the risk pool. And so figuring out this this individual mandate part, the fine that 
is what would make somebody say, oh, I better get insured even though I really don't think I want it at this price. And that's more likely to be the healthy people who are going to say this, this doesn't make sense for me. So to keep them in the pool, they have to pay a fine. And the question is, is that fine large enough? Is mm-hmm. it that, that even though it goes up to 2.5% of, of the income, it still may appear too low? And so try, figuring out ways to get the healthy in will be seen for insurance companies, a really important part of keeping more insurance companies uh, in the marketplace, whatever form the new marketplaces might take. Mm-hmm. So we had a, a caller who's now off the air, um, but left a question about other nations' programs. I mean, are there was the Affordable Care Act, um, did it follow closely along any other nation's health care program? Did it borrow from some? What are some best practices that you've seen? I think in the, in the lead up to the Affordable Care Act, mostly what was said was the model we're following is Massachusetts. That's mostly what we heard about. But actually, if you take a look at what some other countries' successful systems are and to, and to what extent do they look like the Affordable Care Act, there are similarities. For example, if you take a look at the Dutch system, that's what has been written a lot about as successful and similar in the sense that there is there is a choice of private insurance plans, there's an individual mandate idea and, and, and competition. So I think it's, it's that we, under the Affordable Care Act, we don't look that different from other countries. We, we do have more uninsured, but remember the Affordable Care Act didn't go as planned in 2012 when the Supreme Court said that states could decide whether they did want the Medicaid expansion and almost half the states said no. Mm-hmm. Okay. Leslie, in your, uh, the population of people that you work with, I mean, how important has the Affordable Care Act in terms of uh, getting them, and I think you said because of Medicaid, it maybe didn't have that much of an impact. That's right. Yeah. So we serve people yeah. with pretty significant intellectual and developmental disabilities. Most of them have been eligible for Medicaid for a long time. So they've received their health care through a Medicaid plan, and they also receive all their, most of their uh, long-term services and supports through Medicaid, and that's really where Stonebelt services come in. Mm-hmm. So... Um, most of the clients that we support do not get on the uh, uh, on the ACA because they've already been covered. I think there are family members that have certainly benefited by that. I can't speak to that. That's not my area of, of expertise. Um, our big concern is as the Congress and the President are looking at changes in the ACA, that they're also going to use this as an opportunity to change this long-term Medicaid entitlement program that has offered you know, really important community-based supports for for decades, mm-hmm. um, and turning it into a block grant uh, is going to create fun- funding erosion over time. So, what would your? I mean, what's your message to Senator Donnelly, Senator Young? You know, Senator Young, who just was elected a Bloomington person. I would say, um, say no to block grants. Okay. All right. Our phone numbers again are 855-0811. That's the 812 area code, 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I just hearing you speak, I, I kind of wanted to maybe delve a little deeper into that. Um, can, can you talk us through a little bit? You know, we, we hear about the block grant, maybe don't understand fully how that works and then how that can affect you. 
So so maybe like kind of that, that domino right. effect. Of, so so of right that. now, Indiana puts in a dollar into the Medicaid program, and the federal government matches that with $2. So that covers children's health. That covers nursing home placements for, for people that qualify. It covers people with disabilities. It covers low-income people. I'm interested in the people with disabilities part. Not that I'm not interested in the other, but I know more about the yeah. people with disabilities part. And so that pays for them to um, you know, ha- maintain a job. It pays for them to live in a group home or have a, a semi-independent living situation where they're living with a couple of other people with supports. It pays for them to get lifelong learning and education. So it, it goes way beyond what most people would think about as being Medicaid. So in the block grant situation, the state will just be giving a block of money or a per capita cap is another system. And the federal government will no longer participate in the same way. It will put that block grant on some sort of an inflationary factor, but it won't account for increased needs when populations rise, when more of us in baby boomer age start needing those services. It won't account for hard economic times. Uh, It won't guarantee eligibility. States will have to fill in the gaps where those things uh, happen, or they'll have to cut services. So most states are not going to be able to come up with the kinds of funds that are going to be missing. And so I think the first thing that will change is eligibility. The next thing will change is the services that are provided. Um, and, so, and the next thing is going to change is going to be the amount that's paid for those services. Medicaid already pays the lowest amount of any, any, mm-hmm. provi- any uh, uh, funder. So to think about all of those things being eroded even more, it, uh, you just wonder how, how would we survive? How would organizations like ours, other, other providers of health care, how would we survive? What would we have to do to keep the doors open? All right. We're going to take a short break now. Uh, we're talking about health care issues, the, uh, the potential uh, repeal and replacement of the Affordable Care Act, what impact that might have on Indiana, uh, have on Bloomington, have on the rest of the country. So if you want to join us, please uh, give us a call right now at one 812 811 or one 877 You're listening to Noon Edition, and we'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at WFIUNews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. All 
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Joe Wren from WFIU and WTIU, and our three guests in the studio with us today, Kosalee Simon, a professor in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs and an expert in healthcare policy, Leslie Green, the CEO of Stonebelt Arc, and Nancy Woolery, a navigator for uh, the Affordable Care Act and also health project manager for the City of Bloomington's Community and Family Resources Department. If you have questions or comments, please give us a call at 1-812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-93 outside of the Bloomington calling area, wfiu.org slash noon edition is where you can find us online if you want to join a live chat. And at noon edition is our Twitter handle. Joe? Uh, so I guess just kind of following up on what we were right before the break on uh, the block grant. So uh, you know, many concerns, but are those being addressed? Are those being talked about in the government in, you know, all this that's that's going on? I mean, are we hearing this side of the story on a bigger level? I would say so. Uh, it, it's only a few days really since block grants became front and center on the discussion. So I think we haven't seen a lot of details. Yeah. Maybe we were mm-hmm. saying it was really on uh, Sunday um, when block grants were mentioned that people started thinking, oh, well, let's yeah. um, think about the, the It's really down to the details of how are the amounts going to be set. So the idea is that right now the federal government doesn't cap the amount of money that it gives to states for people who sign up for Medicaid. And so as things become more expensive, as people become more, um, the needs grow, the, the funding is there. And the idea of a block grant is fundamentally to try and reduce cost growth. And so the concern is that the details will be such that the amount of money that replaces the uncapped amount, the capped amount, right, it, it is not going to keep up. We've heard. I mean, we've heard the term block grants before used in other parts of the government. What are some other areas where block grants have been used, and how successful have they been? So I did a little research on that and got a report from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and they looked at funding for major block grants over time, adjusted for inflation and and population growth, and they have I think it was thirteen different block grants, including community de- development block grants, social security block grant. TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, Native American Housing Block Grant, it goes on. And those, those uh, programs since 2002 are seeing about a 26% decrease in funding. Okay. So and as, as much as uh, 75% uh, decreases in funding. Per, so on, on the whole, you see an erosion of um, funding over time. I know uh, that community development block, block grants, that's something that the city council every year, I think, has, mm-hmm. you know, they, they mm-hmm. provide funding. The money comes to them, and then they decide who's going to get mm-hmm. the funding. There always are more applications for these block grants, mm-hmm. right, Nancy? Right. I mean, you work with that, <laughs> yeah. right? Mm-hmm. How's that program work, yeah. and, and what, well, what are I, the, the drawbacks? Yeah, right? I don't myself work okay. with the program. Okay. But, um, I actually staff a city commission, and two of my commissioners are on the committee for the block grants. One is for social services, and the other one is um, for community development, um, you know, capital projects. 
And mm-hmm. the feedback I get is, oh, you know, we got all these grants, but we only have this much money to distribute. And it's mm-hmm. real difficult, you know, to figure out who gets what. Mm-hmm. I, I can give you an example on the social services block grant. That used to be one of our major sources of funding. And as it, and when it went to, when as it started to erode, we would, that money would run out by about April of every fiscal year. Our fiscal year goes till July first. So from April to July, we had to figure out how, you know, what we were doing with that. And uh, most of those services, Indiana started paying for through Medicaid. So we moved from one funding source to another, and now that funding source is also subject to the same fate. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have, we've had a phone call from Becky who says she – and she, again, she um, just left a question with our producer. She says Trump already signed the executive order on the ACA as repeal set in stone, and when will it be? Coastally? So in, in order for repeal to, to happen, there are these two ways people have, have, have discussed that it could – happen through a budget reconciliation process, which is not going to be difficult to achieve in the Senate, but would only be limited to changing parts of the ACA that have direct financial consequences, direct spending consequences. So that means things like the amounts of subsidies that are being given, but or, or even the the, whether the IRS will enforce the collection of the individual mandate, that fine, but wouldn't be able to get rid of things like that insurance companies can't charge more for pre-existing conditions. Those things are going to require would, would require a lot more um, support than exists currently in Congress. So that's the way in which yeah, it is possible to to essentially get rid of the Affordable Care Act by getting uh, the, the elements that translate into getting people coverage. But um, whether that's going to happen in a timeline that enables the current promises that are being made about nobody lo- losing coverage to, to, to happen, that's all left to be seen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, what's interesting, too, Seema uh, Verma, who's now Trump's administra- administrator for Medicare and Medicaid, worked with uh, former Governor Pence to create HIP 2.0. So are we going to see maybe some um, oh reflection of what she did here more on a nationwide level, do you think? That's certainly the, the speculation is that if uh, we can take a, a look at Healthy Indiana's Medicaid and think that maybe the options that will be proposed in the future for states will include more of those kind of possibilities, that states who currently have to go through a pretty rigorous attempt to convince the federal government that if they have a plan to have health savings accounts or cost-sharing or other kind of work work requirements, it's it's rather difficult now. And so maybe the administration would make it easier for states to incorporate those features into Medicaid plans. So I, I have a, a story from the Washington Post here, and you know, it's not one of uh, the president's favorite newspapers right now, but <laughs> it's still a pretty reputable 
uh, operation. And uh, in this particular column, it says Republicans may have more difficulty changing Medicaid into a block grant program than maybe some people think because they've done they've tried to do this in 1981, 1995, and 2003 unsuccessfully, according to this story. And Medicaid survived and even expanded under the Affordable Care Act. Um, so what are some other strategies they might use if this block grant program, block grant funding doesn't doesn't work, Kosaline? Well, other parts that we're, we're we've been hearing about are tax tax credits, mm-hmm. allowing insurance companies to sell across state lines. Um, there's also a lot we we have heard in in the form of Paul Ryan's plan about Medicare, although that would be politically very difficult to achieve. Anything that is about changing Medicare is, and Medicaid seems less so politically immune. So uh, we may be hearing what? more. And let me about ask, why, why do you think that is? Because is it because it serves um, policy, mm-hmm. serves people that have a lower voice than I think so. Yeah, I mean, we think all of us are in it for Social Security, right? All of us are in it for Medicare. So we're AARP, everyone's uh, in that uh, kettle, but not everybody's in the Medicaid thing. And I think it gets perceived as being a freeloader's place. Um, And there might be people that abuse the system, but the people that I work with are certainly not. They're using it to basically sustain life and Mm -hmm. to have a life. Mm So. There's, there's a lot of concern about Medicare's trust fund and changes that many people agree uh, just have to happen to, to Medicare, but which administration is going to be able to do that, we, we just uh, don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348, WFIU.org slash noon edition is where to go for our live chat if you want to join us there. So somebody has uh, phoned in another question, says is reaching out to our legislators at this point um, really is something that we could do or is it this in vain? I, I would think it's always a good idea to reach out to lawmakers, right? Definitely. Yeah. Um, there has been a lot of posts on Facebook mm-hmm. about who to call, what numbers to call, you know, keep encouraging your legislators not to drop programs um, because they want to hear, you know, from their constituents. And hopefully if more and more people flood their, you know, phones and, and emails that, you know, this will leave some kind of a, um impression on them. Mm-hmm. Leslie, you've worked in. Yeah, definitely the voices are important. And the more voices that get active, the better. Um, I think some people are pretty intimidated by that. I was when I started this position many years ago. I am not intimidated now, and I'm trying to help everybody else not be intimidated because it's those personal stories, those impacts to all these individuals that will make a difference. This, uh, Speaking again just of the disability block, that's a huge block of voters, but not ten- typically given much heed by the politicians. Mm-hmm. But I think they may start hearing a lot more. So I want to ask a really broad question, uh, Coastly. I hope you can help me sort this out. But I think I I have a hard time believing that people on either side of the political aisle want to stop um, men and women, people with disabilities, from having basic 
health care. So why was the Affordable Care Act such a such a, um, a touch point for all this anger and all this political rhetoric? This is something I think that people who study politics will be dissecting for a long time. How is it that a policy that ensured many millions of people became viewed as such a failure and the rhetoric was all about the problem cases and that there really wasn't a lot of visibility to the millions who did get insurance. Mm -hmm. So um, when we think about what our lessons learned, it's certainly that somehow the the, the Affordable Care Act was not adequately portrayed as as a success. Somehow it was a political failure. And and the signs of that are that at, at voting time, people just decided somehow it must be bad. And maybe it's that if we take a step back and say, what do we mean it's bad? And, and do we realize that getting rid of it means getting insurance, getting rid of insurance for millions of people. It's not quite what people had in mind. People probably are really thinking, well, immediately there'll be some other plan which will be better. But if pressed, what in what way is it better? They might say, oh, it's cheaper or it covers more people. Uh, are we going to be able to cover more people with less money? I, I don't think that's something that's, you know, mm. really... Um, possible to, to envision. Well, I also think about this as, in some ways, a compromise plan. And we've had, I think, I know you've been on the program with Rob Stone before, and Dr. Stone was not a big fan of the Affordable Care Act the way it ended up because he felt it didn't go nearly far enough. And I think it probably what President Obama started with would have gone further in terms of insuring people. So did, did compromise fail in some ways? Is that where we are? Yes, unfortunately, I think it did. It's kind of a rhetorical question, I guess. But yeah, it didn't go far enough for some and went too far for others. Uh-huh. Okay, we have we have a phone call, so let's go to if you guys can get your headphones on now. Let's go to Micah, who's on the phone. Micah. Hi, um, I'm a mental health provider here in Bloomington, and my question is about the Federal Parity Act that. Um, put on par substance abuse treatment and mental health coverage with medical care. And I'm just wondering if there's any potential that could be changed with any of the Affordable Care Act revisions we're hearing about. Hi, Micah. That, um, try to answer that question. It's um, okay. Nothing has been floated as changing the parity law. Okay. Although what does change is that you have access to the parity law only if you do have insurance. So in that sense, that what's happening with the ACA and 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 the benefits of the parity law are. Can you explain connected. the the parity law? A little so bit? yeah, the parity law. These there have been state laws and federal laws just getting stronger over time, and finally the more recent one that that says you know. When an insurance company covers physical health, mm-hmm. usually the copays will be lower or the restrictions lower than in coverage of mental health. And that, that has to stop. It has to have the same terms. Mental health should have as generous terms of coverage. Okay. So, Mike, has that been a, a, an issue that's changed for you over with the Affordable Care Act? Um, it's, it's People are being covered. I just am and a lot of the people I work with are concerned that somehow their benefits are going to change on the mental health side. 
And um, historically, mental health was really treated very differently. And with the Purity Act, it's it's a respected need, and it's we do have such a need with a substance abuse issue going on in the state. I would just hate to see that um, relegated to a past position where it wasn't considered equal. And uh, I wasn't clear with the federal law whether that could be changed. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. Thank for, thanks for calling in. We we appreciate it. Eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the Bloomington area. WFIU.org slash noon edition for a live chat and at noon edition if you want to get to us on Twitter. You know, I know we talked about this briefly earlier, but I thought this is the reoccurring question. Can maybe we talk a little bit or fill us in a little bit more on this the overall timeline? of what what and and i know it's probably up in the air but just to give people more of a a example of of any type of timeline of what might may or may not happen i think something important to mention regarding the timeline especially since we are coming up against this deadline of signing up for marketplace coverage for Mm -hmm. this year is that it's very unlikely anything is going to change of the coverage you receive this year if you sign up for the marketplace And the reason for that is that insurers are on the hook for covering the costs. So sign up now knowing that it's very, very unlikely anything could change for this year. What we're talking about are changes that will affect what coverage people have in 2018. Mm -hmm. Nancy, you want to add to that? Because I know you're getting a lot of of calls and and you're helping people sign up, right? Right. Um, That's true. I've been telling people when they've been very apprehensive about whether to sign up that this will, your insurance will, we hope, be covered for the end of 2017. After that, of course, right now we don't know, but, um, you know, the contract is supposed to last until the end of this year for coverage. Okay, we're starting to get a lot of phone calls backed up now, so let's go first to uh, Owen. Can we get Owen on the air? on the Republican side and in the White House who have talked about changing or significant. Do we lose, Owen? Okay, I guess we uh, we seem to have lost Owen. We'll try to get him, get him back. Be patient there with us, Owen. All right. So, uh, you know, there there's so much that is going on in uh, Washington right now. I mean, these executive orders are flying and there's a lot of people who are trying to sort of, um, you know, follow up on their their election promises. But, you know, it, it just seems to me that when people get to the and, and this is sort of a follow up to my earlier question about people want to provide some sort of coverage. I mean, the political will of the people, it seems like, will keep um uh, will keep these 20 million people insured in some way i I guess i'm that's sort of a statement but is that is it possible that 20 million people are going to lose their insurance coverage i think it's going to be interesting to see what the governors do uh, as we talk Mm -hmm. about the block grant because the governor's states have a lot at stake Mm -hmm. um, because they're going to be on the hook so to speak for for those extra costs when people don't have health coverage where do they go to the emergency room what do they do? They, you know, they get the most expensive coverage. People with disabilities go to institutions or nursing homes if they don't have home, community-based services. Those are certainly proven to be more expensive options. So um, hopefully, some of uh, those ideas and thoughts will, pro- you know, 
encourage uh, people on both sides of the of the aisle or both sides of the political spectrum to say, hey, we've got to do what is prudent and what's good for people and not what's an ideological um, argument. Have, have I know you've been to the State House already this year. Have you heard anything? Yeah, yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> heard anything from uh, Governor Holcomb on these issues? You know, um, I think Governor Holcomb is probably going to be one of the ones that feels like the block grant could be a good thing and would provide the state flexibility. I mean, obviously, coming out of that administration that helped create the HIP 2.0. Um, he's going to get a letter from me, though, uh, to say, <laughs> hey, you know, maybe think about this or think about that, uh, especially in regards to the impact it may have on uh, the services. Indiana has done a great job of deinstitutionalizing people and getting them out of state-run institutions, which were very, very costly, and giving them high quality of life in their local community. So I would hate to see us do something in the state that would jeopardize that. Uh, where can people go to get help? Um, and keep in mind that we are people in Columbus maybe listening, Terre Haute, so it's not just in Bloomington, but if people need uh, a, a resource, where's a good place to, where do you start? Um, well, as far as um, helping people sign up for the ACA or mm -hmm. HIP, um, we have several enrollment uh, sites in Monroe County. Um, City of Bloomington, um, IU Health has a department called Individual Solutions, and they help people get on health care. Um, we also have the South Central Community Action Program, Covering Kids and Families. Um, Covering Kids and Families is a statewide coalition, and they work with different communities um, to try to increase the number of families that get health care. And we also have some federal navigators um, that are housed in Indiana because when the ACA first came on board, the feds gave money for federal navigators. So they had to be trained federally as well as um, in Indiana. And it's called Aspen. I think they are um, affiliated provider services of Indiana or something like that. And they do help people, not just in Monroe County, but statewide. Mm -hmm. I don't have those phone numbers, but if you go to the City of Bloomington website, those are all listed there. Okay. So I know, Coastal you mentioned a couple of other ideas that the uh, the Republicans, the people who are, want to repeal and replace, have, have thrown out there. I've always been curious about the uh, selling across state lines. How did that um, pro how did that prohibition come into place in the first? place and what's the benefit or non-benefit of it? The way that currently insurers cannot sell across state lines is in the sense that you have to be licensed and allowed to sell in each state. And it certainly isn't the case that there aren't national insurers that are national insurers sell in every state. So it's not that you cannot sell in any state you want, you just have to go and become licensed. And that means that you then have to abide by the rules of that state in terms of what insurance must cover. Even though the Affordable Care Act has minimum standards that may not have been what every state required, 
Some states go further. New York, for example, has a whole list of services that some other states may not have as things that if you sell insurance in this state, you have to cover, for example, maybe infertility services or other things that are just not part of every standard insurance package. So if it is possible then for people from New York to buy insurance that is sold by the rules of Texas, let's say, what what people worry is this is a race to the bottom in the sense that states then lose the ability to really regulate their own insurance. So that's actually a move against state autonomy. It's that it'll become such that a state that imposes fewer rules will be where everyone wants to buy insurance because it'll be cheaper. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, the the, uh, government is talking about having more autonomy for the states with block grants. On the other hand, this would be a this would be sort of in opposite of that. Okay. Yes. And then you also mentioned the tax credits. How would that work? And how? If um, in, instead of having something that is income-based, that instead there's just tax credits so that it becomes more of everybody has greater health savings account type benefits, um, it, it, it's hard to imagine that that is going to cover as many people with the same amount of money because really the problem is about affordability rather than access to the tax grid because people who are wealthier have employer health insurance that already has favorable tax treatment. Mm-hmm. How has the Affordable Care Act um, altered uh, ta- the, the fact that there is a lot of employer health insurance benefits out there. Has it changed the way employers are offering benefits? It hasn't had a huge change, I would say. The way that employers were brought into the Affordable Care Act was through this mandate that was postponed, as you know, but it was to say that if you are a large employer defined as 50 equivalent workers and you didn't offer health insurance, you're going to have to pay a fine. And that was meant to keep the employers in the game so that instead of employers saying, oh, why should I offer health insurance now that there are income-based assistance available outside, that would would have led to a much more expensive and changed system than what we have now. Mm -hmm. So the employers also were on the hook for providing health insurance uh, to to a full-time worker defined as a different cutoff than 40 hours, right? 29 to 30 hour rule. Mm-hmm. And so that, those are the ways the employers were really brought in. There were other changes about making sure that these were uh, plans that high, high actuarial value, but those are sort of uh, less central than the big employer mandate. We, we in Bloomington have heard a lot about the medical device tax as part of the Affordable Care Act, part of the, the means of paying for it. And I do believe I've seen at least one press release uh, recently saying that, that there's going to be a move to repeal that. Have you heard much about the device tax since Trump took over? I, I, I think the expectation is that those taxes are, are likely to go away, that the uh, the ways in which it has affected the industries are being heard and that, and that those ta- have been unpopular. And that tax could go away before any any uh, significant change in the way people are covered goes That's away. Right. It would just be part of the funding yes. that's available. 
Okay. So we only have a couple minutes to go, and I guess I just want to give each of you an opportunity to talk about, you know, what are you going to be looking at next? I mean, what are the key areas and the people that, you know, Leslie that you work with and Nancy that you work with, you know, what what should people be really concerned about and watch and try to talk to their um, legislators or congressmen about? Nancy? Well, um, as far as people who need insurance and don't have it, I encourage them to sign up before Tuesday. <laughs> um, and as far as the legislators, I just keep, you know, calling them, emailing them, telling them, you know, we need people covered. Uh, we don't want this repealed. Um, I mean, that's great if they have a plan that might be better than or, you know, can make some improvements. But... You know, you just can't let 20 million people be uninsured that are now used to having insurance and getting preventative care mm -hmm. and care when they're sick and not have to worry about, you know, pre-existing conditions anymore. Okay. And, and I would say in addition to those 20 million people that are at risk, there's all these millions of people that already had Medicare, Medicaid, I'm sorry, and they're at risk now too because mm -hmm. as they're picking up the cloth to cut ACA out, they're also saying, oh, let's just take a bigger swath and let's work on this other Medicare, Medicaid issue that we've wanted to for a while. So contact with your federal legislators, your members of Congress, your senators in Washington is where you need to be putting those concerns. All right. I want to thank all of our guests today, Kosalee Simon, Leslie Green, and Nancy Woolery for producer Ryan DeBatista, engineer Mike Pashkash. And Joe Wren, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. <laughs>